Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, and I have a major favor to ask. We love bringing these conversations to you, but it does cost something to keep the lights on, so to speak. We'd love it if you could support our program through the patron app on our website, which is politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. Or you could support us through Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. Again, that's patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. And of course, subscribe, like, review, tell a friend, do all that stuff. We really, really appreciate it. So before I introduce our guest today, I wanted to say that we've prioritized having a diverse array of voices here on Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. And I'm very proud of the number of folks who've joined us so far. So many impressive, accomplished people of diverse backgrounds, diverse viewpoints, diverse in terms of heritage. But up until this point, folks who are non-religious, non-theistic in their thinking, or are atheists have been underrepresented, admittedly, on this program. But, you know, we really do want to be inclusive and have these conversations with all kinds of good people with different views and beliefs than my own. Uh, For example, you might have listened to our talk with Dr. Rick Hansen just recently. It was really cool to learn about mindfulness, the intersection of Buddhism and psychology, as well as to put all that into a contemporary lens and talk about some politics in the discussion. I always love that. Um, So if you haven't listened to that one yet, definitely I encourage you to go back and check it out. But today we've brought in a fellow who happens to be non-religious and I think considers himself an atheist, but we'll, we'll get into that. And I'm really looking forward to introducing him to you today. So without further ado, Kevin Bowling is the executive director of the Secular Student Alliance, an educational nonprofit and the only national organization dedicated to atheist, humanist, and other non-theist students. Kevin has served as the executive director of SSA since 2017 and has over 20 years of nonprofit leadership experience. His career has included over 10 years of student association management and on-campus program development from Los Angeles to Boston, as well as serving in leadership positions with California Thoroughbred Horsemen's Foundation and the Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles, which, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to check out Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles, you got we saw they, they opened, it's got to be two or three years ago, they opened for, um, we saw ABBA at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. And they did this, um, it was, uh, you might be able to, to name the year if I say, it was a tribute to Elton John. Uh, yes, I and I, uh, yeah, I'm. Oh, I was like, I'm not going to remember specifics about it. <laughs> it was awesome. It was so much fun. So uh, anyway, Kevin, so great to have you on TPNR. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing really well, and it, it's great to 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 be here with you. And I think it's, uh, I love the this forum that you have because I think being able to talk about politics and religion, especially in today's climate, uh, is really important. And to have really mindful, civil, thoughtful conversations where you're sharing views and learning from each other is really something that we need a lot more of. 
Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I'm so glad you put it that way. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think you really got to the ethos of what we're trying to do here. So yeah, I appreciate you giving us uh, giving us a hearing or just spending some time with us. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. I've heard you say that you had a quote unquote, very Catholic upbringing. <laughs> can you, can you describe like your family, the, the religious practice growing up? Sure. And I'm sure there's lots of people that are much more Catholic than I have been. But uh, but yeah, my I always start my my grandparents um, went to church like every day. And so they were, you know, very religious um, and both sets of grandparents. But my, my on my mother's side. Yeah. Church every day for as long as I can remember. And my family growing up, my mother was involved uh, heavily in the church leadership, Eucharistic minister and on the councils that she I mean, she baked. Um, Eucharistic bread at home that we take to church and uh, and those sorts of things. So she was very in, involved uh, just in religion and especially in the church when when I was growing up. And I was a altar boy for years and years and years. Um, so grew up very strongly in, embedded in the church and very active in the church. And so it was you know there's something that we sort of continually uh, was a presence in, in our lives as I was growing up. Yeah. So did you, I know it's one thing to like participate in, this is what our family does. And you go to church here and there's the Christmas and the Easter things. Did you ever think about God and all that, or it was just more of something that your family did? It, we, there was definitely thoughts about, about God. Um, I think, I mean, yes. And so my, I, I think my mother also at the time, sort of the other, the flip side of that is that, I mean, the church doesn't have a great stance uh, and is misogynistic when it comes to women and their role in the church and their value and their worth and those sorts of things. And so my mother was, um, she was never the quiet one. And so it was, you know, vocal with, well, why don't women have equal place in the church? And, you know, why? And there was also a time when, um, the altar boys were altar boys and we actually had uh electolytes i was trying to think of the the religious term uh f- you know female electolytes and the church said no we can no longer have those mm-hmm. um and so i re- you know remember what sort of going through that and my mother always being sort of very present and vocal this this doesn't make sense on why we have these two divisions of men are so important and women aren't within the catholic church and so i think that was always sort of the permission to question um, and not to have to believe everything that the church said. Um, and my mom, uh, you know, sort of also presented the lessons in the scriptures in church as those are stories. Um, and we have to apply those to our everyday lives. So there wasn't that this, this was the word of God and, you know, all being, you know, with, without question. And part of it was to question. And how do we examine that? What points do we take? to make our lives better and our lives better for other people. There's also a lot of negative stuff in the Bible. Um, and that stuff you're like, okay, where did that come from? And we just put that aside. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like a lot of folks that I go to church with, we know, and can, most of us can recite that, the, you know, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mind is a part of that. But we somehow seem to forget that, that this whole idea of questioning. Uh, and, and in my case, I grew up very observantly Jewish before I became a Christian. So the idea of grappling with scripture and grappling and wrestling with others who who believe in this stuff and you come across really problematic passages. Well, what what do we do with that? You know, and it's um, yeah, I, I think that's it's a worthy pursuit. And it's 
it's most like if, if everybody's just nodding their heads and every, preaching to the choir, so to speak, what good is it? I don't think we grow. I don't think we really deal with the stuff that we have to deal with. But here's the thing. And this goes to the point of what you were saying before is when we do that, when we do earnestly wrestle, especially with some of the problematic pieces of scripture, we risk the possibility that will come out the other side, shaking the foundations of what we believe. And there's, there, we risk a lot there. Like when I became a Christian, I risked the possibility that I'd be completely ostracized and, and outcast by my family. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of folks go through something similar. If you grow up in a Catholic home, um, there are certain conclusions that you might arrive at that risk the possibility of you being ostracized and outcast. I mean, I, I, I'm guessing that you, you know, being the head of the SSA, that you probably arrived at some of those conclusions at a certain point. <laughs> I, I, yes, I did. And I think even for people of faith, though, you sh- I mean, I think oftentimes community of faith, and especially organized religion, doesn't want you to question. And so even where, like, don't think about it, don't be educated, don't read, you just have to have faith. So... You know, we're not going to provide any uh, explanation or try to give you any concrete message that explains stuff. You just have to believe it on its face value and you can't question it. And, uh, you know, that is, it seems like a very loose foundation uh, to build, you know, your belief system, your values and those sorts of things on. Not that you can't. And I, you know, but I think, yeah, if we, uh, and not that people, there has to be a pursuit in question your religion to to debunk it, but you, having those philosophical debates to strengthen your religion, to have a better understanding, to, you know, as we progress in our world and our, our knowledge grows, shouldn't we then be thinking about things differently? I would argue yes. And having those philosophical debates or questioning that hopefully leads us in new directions in whatever those outcomes may be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to admit that I've had those tendencies in myself and, and when I've had those tendencies, the, the times that grieve me the most as I look back on them is in uh, raising my kids. Now, at certain ages, it's better for the kids to have a little bit more black and white in certain things. Mm-hmm. But certainly once they started thinking for themselves, it, it's, it's, I think it's more important to nurture that. You know, to, to nurture that inclination, to nurture their independent thinking, their their fertile minds, and and they're they're asking questions rather than to indulge in these. I don't know. I can't think of the right word for it, but it's like the conquistador version of doing religion, like <laughs> you know, the contemporary American version of well, you know, we are right about everything. So to the extent that you agree with us, you'll go to heaven. <laughs> you know, I just I, that's doesn't. It doesn't seem to honor scripture, actually. I was just thinking about this today, actually. Um, so a huge chunk of the Bible, as we understand a Hebrew Bible plus New Testament, are the prophets. Mm-hmm. The prophets were talking to the children of Israel, to the, to the people of God. And, and they weren't going around to like Babylon or Persia and be like, hey, you got to agree with us and, you know, vote this way or get this king. They were talking to the people of God and like, hey. Y'all, y'all are worshiping a bunch of idols or y'all are worshiping a, a golden Trump. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there's like all kinds of ways that the people of Israel were going off track. And the, the more often than not, the prophets were talking to them. I, I think it's man, I think we need a little bit more of that rather than that sort of holier than thou posture that that comes off 
uh, it's just too ripe to be hijacked by all the worst elements in our society, you know? So I, I'm, I'm guessing that that's a, a lot of what SSA is, it, it, you're sort of a net, a safety net for folks, uh, young people who see some of that and don't quite know how to, how to work that out or don't have a support system to say, this is all bullshit. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't want any of that, but I, I still want some connect. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud right now, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about SSA? But I think, and yeah, and we work with students all over the country. And so our primarily primary group that we work with are college university students and a little bit of sort of what you were talking about children, you know, as, as children grow up, they go through a very dualistic stage and in colleges and when we start to expand, we start meeting new people. We understand that there's lots, a lot more different perspectives and backgrounds and things that we just didn't grow up with. And we start to question that. And that's really when sort of critical thinking skills come in and we sort of lose that dualism um, and start examining what we grew up with and how are we going to perceive that in life. Um, so there is a, in student development theory, the college traditional college years are a very powerful time and just in our human development um how we're framing ourselves and our interaction with the world and how we sort of grapple and put that all together so that's a super important time but we have students in you know increasing more and more in high schools and even middle school students reaching out wanting to to ha have a ssa or be a you know a member of our organization and primarily because they're looking for people who are like them and mm. developing community and having friends who are, you know, who are like them, uh, who think like them. And so it just it really comes down to that that core sense of community and belonging that, you know, people yearn for. And I think that religion and religious communities often do very well. Um, and to, uh, to highlight a point you were going on a little bit earlier, it's it's religion sort of not matching up with scripture. Mm. I would, I agree with what you were saying there. Um, and even some of the uh, U.S. churches own uh, surveys and things on why uh, young people are leaving religion talk about that dichotomy and the hypocrisy that we currently see between sort of the good parts of scripture and organized religion's behavior towards people and how that, th that doesn't match up and people are going, well, if, if there's this dichotomy and this hypocrisy, I have, I've got to examine this and a large part of the result and increasingly part of the result is young people are leaving organized religion faster and faster and faster nowadays. Yeah, it's interesting. I know in my own formation, uh, I was looking for coherence and consistency. I, ha I had even forming the questions was a huge part of the endeavor knowing how to articulate what questions were bothering me, what questions weighed heavy on me and, and understanding how to articulate those was a huge part of my own project. And then in searching for coherence to that first set of questions, and inevitably you find certain set of answers that open up a million more questions. So I was really curious actually about a little bit more about your own background. At what point did you start arriving at different conclusions about the just the existence of God or, or religion in general. Yeah, and I always sort of, I had the sort of slow roll um, out of religion. So, uh, so yeah, my, we, you know, and there are people for some of the students we work with have real, you know, where religion has really done damage to them and they've been hurt by religion. I'm, I'm fortunate that I didn't have that sort of experience. Um, and so 
and you know, part of my sort of evolution out of religion, uh, if you will, really happened in college. Um, and, and it was a world history class. And I remember in the world history class, we we're talking, there was you know, a real function, a part of the role of the Catholic Church in world history and in and, and its impact. And it, as we sort of, you know, sort of examine that, I realized that the majority of what the church was doing, uh, you know, in its impact with the world was really about power and wealth. I mean, solely about power and wealth. And so that sort of led to like, this has nothing to do with the scriptures. This is anti what the scriptures are talking about. And so that sort of led me to start thinking about it. And I, again, I think my mother's question, like, it's okay to question and to, you know, the teachings and apply those to your current life. Um, and then I think for, you know, a large chunk for me was coming out as being gay. Uh, and at that time, and still even today, the church is extremely negative um, and actively campaigning against and telling me that I am not as full of a human being uh, and that my relationships and that, you know, who I am as a person aren't as worthy um, and that I'm a sinner. And again, I just, from what I knew of religion, that just didn't, you know, didn't match. And I was like, okay, this just isn't making sense any longer. And again, that hypocrisy of we're all God's children, except for you, because you're gay. So you're not. So part of it was a, a little bit of rejection. And part of it was like, this just doesn't match what, what I'm feeling and those sorts of things. And so I think that was a big part of, you know, my leaving, uh, leaving re organized religion and realizing that I probably just don't believe that there is a God. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Now, have you had conversations with family members who are still practicing Catholics and, or otherwise religious? And I'm curious how, how those have gone. Yeah. I have some very, very religious family members. Um, and the fact that I was really me being gay and being sort of active uh, in civil rights and those sorts of things was enough for them where we really don't talk anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's too bad, actually. That I mean, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh so yeah, the and I think it was uh it was easier for me to tell my my sort of immediately family that I was um gay than it was that I didn't believe in God and that is you know really sort of identified as non-religious. And that really I think really started in, in taking this position. There was sort of no more denying it. It was rather obvious and you know, and so so yeah, so I think that was but we've had great conversations. I respect I mean, my family is religious. I respect the religion. I gives them value and purpose and it is meaningful in their lives. So yay, that's fantastic. So yeah, and I've had my own, you know, sort of path with with religion and sort of and process of, of leaving and, and that's fine as well. Yeah, and I was also curious about, you've been, I don't know if this is the right word, but missional from a relative, well, from a relatively early stage. I mean, you got a master's in higher ed. So it seems to me just in looking at your background that you started to get clarity on what your life's work would be fairly early on. How, how did that, how early on did you get clear on wanting to work with students? And was it part of your own evolution, if you will, that you started to get clear on that? Or how did that all come about? 
I, I think it, in part it became from just me being very active in college. So I was on the campus activities board and was a resident assistant and did a little dabbling with the new campus newspaper and just was very active on campus. So saw, and I think through my own experience, saw the leadership development that came through. And so really was enjoyed doing that and wanted to continue doing that. And working with students is fun. I mean, there's a, a level of energy and excitement that's just fantastic. Uh, I really enjoy the leadership development part, which is, I think, a lot of what we do with all of our students all across the country. How do you work with other people? How do you do programs? How do you impact your campus? How do you make your community better? What about community service? How is that impacting people? So those are all, I mean, sort of positive things. And I really work, I think, a little bit to your question, really look at the different things I've done professionally it's been really important to me that what I do on a daily basis, I feel benefits other people. So I, I really enjoy that sense of going home each day and going, yep, my work helped better. My community helped better in this instance, the world for young people. Um, and so I enjoy that. Okay. So this is where I'm super curious at a certain point, you came to the conclusion that you don't believe in God, that the whole idea of God didn't make sense. And okay, don't believe in God. Um, you also found uh, great hypocrisies, important hypocrisies, in specifically in the Catholic Church and other major religions, to, to the extent that I understand that you looked into other religions. But you have this pull to do good work for others in society. Is that because you then began to look into specifically secular or humanist values, philosophies? I'm curious both about secular humanist values, but I'm also curious about what it is in you and it, or just a, another human being that rejects religion, but, but also has these, these poles to do good work. Like, I'm curious about that, that whole thing. <laughs> well, sure. And I think there's uh, a fallacy, a myth you know, however you want to categorize it, of religion has the um, captive nature on values and morals. Um, because I think, that, you know, turn that question around. If you didn't have religion and, and religion wasn't helping you define your morals and values that you live your life, so you would go out and steal and kill and lie and you would just start going out and doing all those things because you didn't have those that religion wasn't saying that's how you should be doing it. That's a fair, totally fair question. And in fact, I, I you, you, you tell, you might be talking to the wrong guy because I, I'm very much at odds with uh, what a, a lot of churches seem to be compelling folks to do, you know, especially over these last five, six years. I mean, a lot yeah. of my brothers and sisters in church are not just, not just explaining away, but embracing like anti-virtues, anti-morals, you know? I mean, so we, we've talked a lot about it on this program, you know, just basic, pare it down to its most basic, you know, there's this expression and even non-religious people have, you know, appreciate the expression, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, these are pretty universal. Yeah, it's in the Bible, but it's pretty universal. We can, yeah. a lot of us can agree that those are good virtues. I mean, Donald fucking Trump, is the absolute opposite of all that, you know, or, or however we might define love, whether it's, we take uh, 
what how the Bible talks about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Or we have other definitions of love. We agree that love is a good thing. And however you define it, patient, kind, that's not Donald Trump. It does not envy. It does not boast. But Donald Trump does. So I don't. So I'm at odds with the religious portion of it. But going back to something else. That said, I am religious, so <laughs> I'm kind of a walking contradiction. But um, I, okay, let me explain that for a second, because I want to fight against the hijacking of religion, the hijacking of of religious practices. The high, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I still practice um, certain. Um, Jewish rituals, like every year we still have a Seder, a Passover Seder, where we tell the story of the Passover. And I, I'm getting chills just thinking about it because I know that's something that my father did with his father, uh, my mother did with her family, my great grandparents, my great, great, great. Like this is something that that ties me into and allows me to be a part of a much longer story that gives me a sense of meaning. And you know, strangely, I think you can do that without even necessarily believing in God, but you can believe in your family. You can believe in your heritage. You can believe in where you came from and you can believe in being part of a story. Okay. So I do think there's value to rituals and I really hate the fact this isn't anything new to our day. I mean, historically, there's obviously been great atrocities done in the name of religion, done in the, with guys, my own family, you know, eviscerated in Germany in the mid middle part of this last century. Um, my own grandmother had to leave everything they had in, in Ukraine, in Journey Ostar for Ukraine, um, be at the hands of men wearing crosses on their chests. So I, I'm very, uh, I, see, I see both sides of it, but I don't want to see that ground. I don't want to see religion or, or, or practices or rituals to, to just the evil that, that has come with guys who've hijacked all of that. So where does that leave us? I think it makes it that much more imperative for us. And I, I think I've, I've heard you, sorry, I'm going on a long time about this, but I think I've heard you talk about, I might've even heard you say the word rituals. So there is a value to shared rituals, shared experiences, um, and tying into these greater stories. Now, the other thing I will say, and then, then I'll shut up and I'll let you respond to all this, you know, fire hose stuff, um, is that... I think it's the existence of God, the or the idea of God, that the very frame of reference for what is good is is a God. But that's because I arrived at a different conclusion much earlier on, and that was that I believe in an open universe. I, I don't believe in a closed universe within which only things within the natural order can happen. But but that I mean that's a whole other conversation. How I arrived at that basic conclusion. Uh, that allowed me to arrive at another conclusion about the existence of God and then the nature of God and what, what God is like. So I think that there, at the very least, I do think I also arrived at a related conclusion that there is something unique about human beings uh, mm -hmm. as, as creatures on this, or, you know, uh, I don't know how you would call it, like unique animals on this earth, if you will. And uh, there are some things that I, I just don't find purely I do believe in evolution, by the way, but but purely evolutionary explanations for such things as the appreciation of beauty or a joy at laughter, you know, or appreciating music, um, which, by the way, 
I use those things to prove that uh, Donald Trump is not human and doesn't have a soul. But that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. Anyway, I've talked a lot. I'm sorry. I'm not the guest. You are. <laughs> no, yeah. No, yeah. You. Uh, so there was a lot there, which is good. Uh, and I will say for celebrating rituals and having traditions for human beings is extremely important and, and whatever your community in. Um, and Sasha Sagan, daughter of Carl Sagan, uh, her, I think, most recent book is talks all about rituals and traditions. And it's obviously from a very secular point of view. Um, so, yes, I mean, we I completely agree with those are important and we try to establish rituals with our student chapters and want them to celebrate things and we just sponsored with a secular humanistic jewish organization we did a secular passover uh our seder that we did you know as a as a webinar so celebrating those sorts of things uh de los muertos which is a, can be a very religious holiday but there's also a larger population of latino and hispanic people who aren't religious and so wanting to still celebrate those sorts of things and honor our our relatives and and do that but it doesn't have to be with that sort of god perspective and i think there's are there are lots of questions in our universe of why did evolution happen and how did we how did we become how do we you know get created as a people and as a the solar system and the universe and those sorts of things and i think the often statement from you know if I have to generalize is from non-religious people is we may not know all of that and that's okay, but having, making up that there's, um, you know, it's often men, men in the sky who are doing all this stuff to us and for us, and they know all what we're going to be do isn't always the sort of the best explanation to rest everything on and not look forward for, forward and how did this all happen so that scientific exploration and you know uh, you know critical thinking are important values that we should be moving forward on okay so then and this is going to sound like a kindergartner's ignorant or i not kindergartners but it because kindergartners ask profound questions just an ignorant question so where do your values come from? Is it something, do you believe in the basic goodness of human beings? Or like, is there, where do values come from? When I, th I think humanism or humanists believe that, you know, if we want to build a more humane, just, compassionate, democratic society, that it's better to use um, pragmatic basis on that of, human experience and critical thinking and reason and sort of knowledge, you know, reasonable knowledge to build those on as, as a better platform. Um, personally, do I, do I believe that we, as humans, do we generally want to do good? I do. So, and I think, and part of that's our entire, uh, our society is really what I think sets a lot of that and how we interact as human beings and what messages are, are coming out. And you've sort of mentioned Trump several times. Um, <laughs> and, we, when, and there's also then the Trump effect. And if you Trumpism. just look at, yeah, yeah, the, the United States and looking at how um, I think dialogue and our interactions with one another when we don't agree and sort of intolerance really rose during that times because it became more acceptable in our general society. And it's not something that I enjoyed, 
Uh, and I think there's lots of people who react to like, I didn't feel good in that. And I don't like where we went as, as a society. But and that one, I think, was from a very small of, you know, one person who has obviously a huge stage being the president of the United States, um, but sort of injecting, you know, different values that were became acceptable. And I, I, I don't think that was a good thing for us as a, a nation as a whole. You know, you bring up uh, an interesting point. So you arrived at um, Secular Student Alliance in 2017. How familiar are you with the climate surrounding the organization prior to you working with them? You know, I, I'm just curious about the Trump effect, like how SSA has been received. So, yeah, so yes. Um, so we've sort of seen our students on campuses. And so, and our, our you know, we have chapters and there's autonomous student organizations on their individual schools or our campuses. And they've really sort of developed relationships, you know, at Clarion University, our SSA chapter and Campus Crusade for Christ crew had a great relationship. Uh, and so this is pre-pandemic. It's obviously things have changed a little bit, but you know, they would each, each month, uh, they would go watch a movie together and have a conversation. So one week or one month, the members of crew would pick the movie and the next month, our students would pick the movie and it flip flop back and forth. And they had, it was a great experience that both of them have and talking about things that they probably didn't expect to be talking about, but always with that sort of open, like we're here for for dialogue and we wanna learn from each other from different perspectives, and that's a good thing. We started that same chapter. Um, there was a more conservative religious group that actually went to the student government and, and filed an official protest against our students saying that they were coming harassing the Christian students. And, uh, you know, and, and our students were dumbfounded. She's like, what? And our students had pictures where, you know, they would put up posters and the other students, the, stu the, the group that was complaining would go and write stuff on them or rip them down. And they would do chalking on campus, like upcoming meetings and events. And there's the, the conservative religious group would write rather negative things alongside of it um, and was harassing students and following our students and just, you know, doing those sorts of things crew actually came to testify in support of our students and going, no, there's SSA, the SSA group isn't the one doing that. It's the conservative, you know, religious students. They're good guys. We know them. We like the SSA students. They would not do that. So some of the, that's sort of some of the things that we've sort of seen personally. We also know of incidents where religious students have gone into LGBT groups meetings and some of our meetings and have gone in when you know they're publicized on campus have gone in and disrupted the meetings so it couldn't happen um and in some instances and there's you know national stories and it's easy to google where where campus police have had to be called to escort those students out the religious students out so that lgbt groups could continue to have their meetings and meet in peace have you had religious students want to be a part of ssa not to troll but to be kind of joined in common cause like hey it is a secular pluralist society. I'm religious, but I want to be a part of this thing. We we do have students who who are religious students who want to who believe in supporting our secular society, supporting the separation of church and state, um, and also, and I think a, a large part of I think the form that you have here is they want to have philosophical conversations about religion. And and oftentimes their religion and other religions, but oftentimes their religion, but their religious community isn't a safe place to have yeah. those conversations. 
And so our students tend to be very knowledgeable about religion and religion in general, and love to have a conversation about religion. Um, and so we do have, we have religious members who, religious students who are members, um, and our students in most cases often embrace that. Um, and, so, you know, if we have students who have been hurt by religious communities, they come with a, a weary, uh, you know, a, they're, they're a little leery sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but I think if, if religious students are coming in good faith um, to have conversation and wanting to, you know, have, our students are, are more than welcome to have those conversations. And in most instances, welcome those religious students to be, to be involved. Now, I, I, I know that it's not just college campuses, and I, I do want to talk about that outreach you guys did because it's pretty expansive all over the country. But since we're talking about it, I, you also uh, have chapters in high schools uh, and junior high schools as well, I, I think you said. I'm curious in those instances, when you have kids that students that come from religious families, have you had negative encounters from parents of, of those students? Uh, oftentimes for the our chapters in middle schools and high schools, there oftentimes is a, a supportive parents and supportive uh, teachers and faculty, obviously on, on you know, in those schools. Um, and so that's almost imperative that there's some level of support that that can happen. We, I mean, and we have had instances where administration doesn't want the a secular, a, a non-religious group to start, even though they have religious groups, you know, as student organizations. And we have the Freedom from Religion Foundation has a great group of lawyers who are very helpful if if that becomes a problem. And and writing a letter, and ninety nine percent of the time that solves that problem. Going, you know, you have a fair accommodations. You you have to, you know, public accommodations. You have to let them have the the, the their group. Our college students, though, about 80% of our, our, our members in college and higher ed come from religious families. So while they've, their journey is now non-religion, they come from religious families. Um, and so we've had, a, we've had a student who did, we have Ask an Atheist Day, um, so twice a year, and it's <laughs> having a table on campus and going, hey, we're atheists, ask us anything. Yeah. So, and it can be, you know, it's very philosophical, you know, how do you get your morals and how do you explain the start of the universe? And, or it's like, what football team are you rooting for? You know, you know, what'd you have for breakfast? What's your favorite band? Yeah. Um, so we get, it's lots of different things, but it's helped normalizing non-religion. And with almost 50% of youth in the United States now being non-religious, it's still important to do. Yeah. Um, I know you're a big Ryan Burge, uh, you, you're yes. following his stuff. Me too. We, we had him on the program a, a few months ago, just great really enlightening stuff. So yeah, uh, so yeah, it's, I would say we had one student who did one post for asking an atheist day. Not even you know, I'm an atheist. Ask me anything. Just did one supportive post of that on his social media, and his family called him up and was like, "What is this?" And he said, "Well, I'm I'm not religious. I like I don't believe in God." They he had he had to get a job. He like they stopped paying for his his fortunate that tuition already been paid for, but stopped paying for his rent. They were helping with rent assistance. They tried to take his car, even though he paid for it. So he had to get a second job. He's like, I'm not, I'm not quitting college. I'm, I'm finishing college. So got the, the job and then lost all the support and, and community from his family just because of that, that one post. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. You're, you're bringing up a lot of things. Uh, one, my oldest, I have three kids, my oldest, uh, who's 21 now, we had this conversation the other day and Savannah described what she called as religious trauma, going to a Christian school uh, for, for, for much of their life, uh, 
up until uh, just before uh, middle of junior high school. And Savannah has a number of friends who, in particular, the, the other kids that they identify with that I had different gender identity or mm-hmm. were beginning to question their identity, uh, whether it's bi or trans or gay or, you know, I, I'm still learning about pansexual. Like there's still a lot of stuff that I, I'm completely unfamiliar with, but especially those kids, they were put through such trauma at the hands of that school. I would imagine that, I don't know, that's a whole other conversation. I should probably have Savannah back on with some of those students, especially now that they're in their early 20s and how they're working through some of that stuff. And some of them still identify as Christian, you know? So for those who identify as Christians, I wonder what prescriptions they can offer to that school and say, hey, you can do this better. You, you don't have to necessarily, like if you, if you, just at the very least, accept me. You don't even have to affirm me, but at least accept me. It doesn't mean I'm not going to like leak my gay on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. um, so it's, uh, we just had this really, she, she, Savannah, uh, it, she educates me daily. So I'm very grateful to have, oh, I'm sorry, they. Um, see, I'm like, it's a new language that I'm trying to learn. Anyway, so tell me about this huge outreach. It was like over a million students that you reached. Uh, every, was it um, college campuses in every state or ha- tell, tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We started by coming out of COVID. And I, I mentioned that, you know, about 80 percent of our students come from religious families. So for when, camp, you know, in March of 2020, when campuses just closed uh, and students went home, all of a sudden religious students went home to their religious families and their religious communities and had support and community and, you know, and were, were fine for many of our students who now are you know, identifying as non-religious and may not, their family may not be aware of that. They went home to religious families and religious communities and lost their friends and support networks and you know, the things they were doing on campus. Uh, so, so we really, we changed everything that we're doing to really meet the needs and be there digitally, virtually for our students. So they still had those connections. Coming out of the pandemic, um, we really looked at like, we really want to make sure we're reaching out to students um, so that they know, um, you know, they're coming back on campus and they know that we're here. So we identified the uh, largest five uh, public institutions in every state. And so, and reached out saying, hey, we'd like, we'd like the students' email addresses um, and their contact information so that we can reach out to them. And, and we're fair in saying, hey, you know, the, the growing number of non-religious students, most colleges don't provide any resources for their moral and value development or their holistic being a holistic person person and so we you know by being involved they help you know reduce or increase graduation rates reduce dissatisfaction like there's lots of things that being involved in any community on a campus helps the students with the educational experience and betters their educational experience. So yes, we did, we did direct outreach to 1.4 million students. Um, so most of that was by email. Um, some we had telephone numbers, so we sent them texts. Some we had mailing addresses, and so we mailed them information. And we knew that you know, about half the students we'd be reaching were religious students, and about half would be non-religious, uh, you know, however they defined it. And so our really message was, was a, and a lot, a lot of it was uh, Ryan's information about his, you know, the, his article about, you know, 47% of students are identifying as non-religious. And so it was really sort of that, 
the normalization of that and it's it's okay to be non-religious um and then obviously some information about us our scholarships our conference and those sort of leadership development things that that we do and we receive some uh, some very nice uh uh, emails back from religious students, some very interesting ones. Um, and, and, and on this, the flip side, uh, also with some atheist students, we received, you know, most of it was obviously very, very, very grateful and knowing that there were other people out there like them. And there were lots of students on campus like them. We had, you know, that often odd one as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting the way that you just described higher graduation rates and, and data points that indicate there's success and health. There's a subtle difference between the way I've heard, you know, like the school my kids went to for the better part of a decade, they would talk about it in a, in a subtly different way. They would say, because we are right, because we, we know we have the answers. Therefore our kids are going to be better looking. Our kids are going to be smarter. They're going to be the captain of all the sports teams. And because we're right, you know, and then when it turned out that a lot of the kids had trouble and they, they were just normal kids and, you know, a lot of that just breaks down. But what you're what you what I think what you're saying is, no, they have higher rates of success on a, a number of measurable levels because they have connection, because they have support, not because we're right and we have all the answers. You know, if anything, it's a more open inquiry. Uh, of a lot of these philosophical questions. So it's just just an observation, you know, but I was curious since I'm talking about it. Have you had students from Christian schools reach out to you? We before the pandemic, we actually the number of students starting chapters at religiously affiliated or religiously connected schools was actually on a dramatic increase. Mm. Baylor University, Waco, Texas, large private Baptist school actually has had our had our longest running chapter and Baylor would not would not recognize them as an official organization so they couldn't they couldn't book meeting space they couldn't you know uh, they couldn't ha have events on campus and they got very creative and would work with other student groups to ha have events or a professor having a discussion and and those sorts of things but they were during the pandemic they uh, they, they closed, they're in the process. We think we have some students who are gonna restart that chapter now as they're being back on campus. But that was an active place for them to be involved. Baylor also didn't allow the Muslim students to, to form, the Hindu students didn't allow the LGBT students. So they actually all got together our, you know, and, and went to the student activities office and the student government office say, we wanna be recognized. We want to have the same benefits as all, we're paying student fees, we're paying tuition. We want to have the same benefits as everyone else. Um, and the student government and the student activities office seemed uh, supportive. Um, and it came down to, we don't think our alumni and donors will like this at all. And so no. Uh, so it was, it's about money and power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not about doing good or doing what we know is right for the students on the campus who were supposed to be edu educated. And many of our students, while the university knew about the chapter, it was sort of a, a little bit of a don't ask, don't tell. So be quiet, don't create too much trouble. We'll let you, we won't bother you. But many of our students who went to Baylor were on scholarships and many of them were in the honors college at, and on scholarships. So they didn't want to jeopardize that as well. So they valued their experience. They wanted to have this community and understood this is what they, where their values came from, but also recognized that they were in financial peril uh, if they did too much. 
it's interesting how a lot of these arguments come down to some version of territorialism, whether it's financial territorialism, intellectual territorialism, uh, geographic, obviously, territorialism. But but that, that's what this whole project is all about. Not not my project or podcast, but like, you know, American democracy or just civil society. Like, how do we figure out how to live together? You know, so, OK, the, I, I had a question. We were talking a little bit about this before. One of the things that makes sense to me about scripture is that it's the, you know, a couple thousand years old, you know, some of the letters and books in there are older than that. And I, I think that there is value in, in literature that has lasted that long. What you might, and, and obviously, I think we agree uh, to different degrees that it should be looked upon critically, who wrote this, to what audience did they write it, what were the restrictions upon participation uh, in, in even reading this, let alone interpreting this uh, uh, throughout history. So I think a critical eye is a healthy one, even with quote unquote, holy scripture. Are, but are there transcendent documents? Uh, trans, is there transcendent literature, any sort of transcendent material that a humanist or non-religious person, an atheist, might be able to defer to and say, hmm, as opposed, because it might, I don't know, it just, if we're only relying on our own intuition, our own, if that's all, like we have to rely on that to a degree, but that's only our own experience as opposed to deferring to like, oh, wow, this Barkley guy or this Descartes guy or this, you know, whoever it might be has some really sound stuff that I'm deferring to. Is there transcendent literature, I guess, is the short question. There is, uh, there is literature of, of non-religious people. It's not, obviously not as popular as those things on, on society and values and, and, you know, philosophy and examining the world. But I think, and I, I, I think I'm answering your question, but I would say that the earth and our scientific exploration and understanding of it and that it's billions of years old rather than 6,000 is a much better example and, and truer knowledge of what transpired than when you go to the Museum of the Ark uh, in you know, is it Kentucky and you see dinosaurs and people living together uh, and, you know, and the world was created in seven days and it's 6,000 years old and all of those things that make no sense <laughs> and, and vehemently, you know, justified, you know, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's such a rich body of evidence that we have that tells us so much, um, of how we came, how the planet came into existence, even though we can't answer all that. Uh, how we came into existence, how diverse our world is, how our brain in the layers of it from its core to the, the different layers that have given us a different level of intelligence and a different level of consciousness, you know, how much of a difference those things have made. I think that riches our world much more than um, some religious books. And I would argue, you know, the Catholic Bible has been rewritten how many times like what edition are we on and you know it was monks in you know it was monks in uh monasteries rewriting things and changing words and doing all of those things so 
the the word that was originally started is nowhere near what it is today. I mean, homosexuality, the word homosexual appears in Bibles when that didn't come into existence until the 1950s, 60s in there. So how was that in Jesus's time? And in Jesus's time, the Romans, you know, same-sex unions were not taboo in those times. We know that. There's pictures on buildings that show, like, it's a phallus pointing this way if you want this. Like, it was fairly popular in society, or, well, not. It was fairly accepted in society as being part of the society. So that wasn't from Jesus's time. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a lot there. Um, I wonder... <laughs> You're not going to get an argument from me about like 6,007 literal 24 hour days. Like I, I have to have those fights internally in the church. Um, so I'm, I'm not the best person to make that argument about six literal 24. I just think that's, yeah. you know, even just look, I believe in the importance, if not the, uh, yeah, I believe in the authority of scripture, but when you read Genesis one and two, that is just not the point of those chapters. You know, it, it was more about the separation of days and ordering time and, you know, uh, establishing a people it, like, I don't know, it, that, that's a whole different thing. Um, as far as the authority of scripture and, and, you know, the literature itself, I think I, I probably do have some discrepancies with, with how you're describing it. But mm -hmm. I just don't think I, I don't know if I don't know if that's a worthy endeavor. There are other people who've had that conversation. Yeah. I find some of the literature persuasive, some of it not. You know, guys like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel would make an argument that there is if you look at the stuff as literature and, and judge it through the same lens as other literature of antiquity, there's pretty good foundation for um, the authenticity of it, if not mm -hmm. the, the authority of it. Um, and I've found that persuasive enough, but I, I get your point about different translations, like homosexuality is an interesting point because I, I'm literally, I'm in Romans right now. And um, in chapter one, there's a reference to homosexuality. I'm like, now, wait a second. What, what Paul was referring to was, was practices of rape, practices of putting people in, in, you know, uh, how do we, how would he, how do we call it today? Uh, um, cons consensual, not of non-consensual at different levels where it, it was to the point of violence. That's the sexuality he was referring to, but so many translations now, that particular verse is translated. And I'm like, how, how? so I have some of the same questions you do about particular pieces of scripture that we now take, you know, as uh, we just now take it on, on the face value of the translations that we have. And I think a little bit that comes down, and you sort of made this point a little earlier, was religion and the church have been politicized. So, and if you, you know, SCOTUS is uh, just sort of decision coming out, you know, in the 60s when, you know, conservative religious people realized that they could make, you know, abortion an issue to politicize it to help change how they wanted to things. We've seen those, and I'm not trying to get into a, a, a discussion about abortion, but there have been you know, multiple points and even recently where religion has been used to politicize things and sort of take it over outside of its context of really the scriptures and the good messages that were out there. And you sort of spoke to that, that earlier. Yeah, no, it certainly works. There was some good history work. I forgot who, who it was I was speaking to, but the abortion uh, as an issue came into prominence in the late seventies 
uh, and guys, they, they were the guys who were doing it knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, it was guys that were anti-segregationist or, or excuse me, wait, segregation. They, they were trying to perpetuate segregation is what they were doing, but they were trying to find these other sort of hooks to, to perpetuate their cause. It, it's an interesting, uh, I'm speaking a little bit out of turn because I, I, to bring something as controversial as that up, I, I'd want to give it more, you know, more time. But, um, but I, I, I take your point that again, mm -hmm. it's just been hijacked to justify the most unjustifiable types of behavior and um, ungodly causes. So I, I do take your point. I did want to ask you, I've heard you refer to, okay, uh, this is a little bit of a troublemaker uh, kind of a question. Go for it. So I've heard you refer to uh, being woke and um, cancel culture almost dismissively. <laughs> is that, is that, if, did I misinterpret how you were talking about it? Uh, probably not. Obviously, it's a bit of our society, but it's, I think, a, a lot of politics. Um, and I think um, it's probably a little off topic, but the I think the Republican Party is really good at messaging. I don't think, you know, I, not that it's always, I think, the smartest or the, or or I would agree with or correct, but really good at marketing. And Democrats are so horrible at it. So, yeah, so when we get, you know, woke and cancel culture, great marketing. Um, when I look at, you know, cancel culture stuff on, and, and oftentimes it's used on college campuses, do we really see, you know, at any small instance is blown up um, and Fox News does an excellent job of it. I, I give them credit for how well they do to, to their point um, of blowing it up of something small that happens and turning into something huge and making it sound like it's happening everywhere where the evidence shows that it's really not. Um, and I often think with, you know, with cancel culture, it's, we, we, there are some in our society that like to not hold, to be able to say what they want, to do what they want, and never to be held accountable. And I see in our capitalist society, if you believe that I make my decisions on what I buy and those sorts of things, part of that is how I see the company. So if I don't agree with the, what the company's doing, part of my capitalistic values is not to purchase their product. So that's been turned into to cancel culture. Or if I don't like what a person, you know, if I don't like that a person is going around saying that trans people should be killed um, and shouldn't have any rights, you know, why should I support that person? So, and I don't need to hear that person. So yes, and I, I, and I think it's interesting that religious people are, or cons conservative religious people are often the ones who are claiming cancel culture. But if you look at the Teletubby, if you look at Walt Disney World right now with DeSantis, I mean, if that's not the biggest thing of instance of, you, I don't like what you said, so I'm gonna ignore your freedom of speech. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, ignore the, that I'm the governor and supposed to be dealing with all, you know, everybody, and I'm going to cancel, I'm going to pull your thing. If that's not the biggest hypocritical action of so many values that DeSantis says he believes in and exact example of cancel culture in his own, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's, it's confusing to say the least for someone who, you know, literally in a 24 hour period, a lot of my friends who are very like Fox News conservative, I don't think that's mm -hmm. actually like Burkean, you know, Buckleyan or Thomas Sowellian type conservatism. I think it's far, it's uh, appalling for folks who really philosophic, the philosophical conservatism. But within a 24 hour period, the Fox News version of conservatives 
are um, celebrating Elon Musk buying Twitter because of freedom of speech. And everybody's going to have freedom of speech. You know, there's questions about that, like freedom of speech. So spreading lies and falsehoods and, and advocating for um, hateful violence. That, that's not, I don't think that's necessarily included in the ethos of, of freedom of speech. But within a 24-hour period, they're celebrating Ron DeSantis, who's, who's literally using the government or the um, Republican-led Florida state legislature yeah. to, you know, to um, act out against and take, you know, take great pains to punish um, a, an entity who, is, by their freedom of speech, express support for their LGBTQ uh, employees. So out of that, to me, that it's a pure freedom of speech thing. Um, whatever you think about the don't say gay bill, which uh, I know it's not really called that officially, but yeah. I mean, that, that was another piece of, it's just like, it's trolling. And basically what that does is it gets certain amount of clicks and views and, you know, it helps him raise some money. I'm sure, you know, he raised a ton of money just based on, on passing that legislation, but what the hell does it do? Like, so teachers don't, can't talk about and like, first of all, it's like critical race theory. It's like there was there was no high school curriculum that had critical race theory anywhere in its subjects. But now everybody's an expert on it and you can't talk about critical race theory. Let's pretend there was no slavery because it'll make, you know, Johnny who, you know, goes to, you know, whatever church feel bad about himself. Like, I don't know. It's crazy. You got me started. So, no, no and, I, and I think but I, to you, what does it do? And so for those for, so for young gay kids who hear this message and who, who are trying to figure this out for themselves or even who are, are in non-supportive environments and who don't want to be gay because of the negative messages that they've had growing up, this is what increases suicide rates and this is what increases depression. And I mean, there are so many negative things that happen by the don't say, by not just, even if it was never passed, even just bringing it up, that the message that so many young people are getting is horrible. And what that does to their self-confidence, what that does to their, their, how they value themselves, how they see their place in our society is so detrimental. That alone is the reason not to have those conversations because we, we know we are, by doing that, we are, in, we are hurting people by doing that. Yeah. Uh, and just to me, that, that makes no sense in, in, in doing those sorts of things. So I'll tell you uh, again, by way of confession, uh, an epiphany that I had in 2004, this is a long time ago. Uh, and I was a pretty, still pretty new Christian. Uh, I had only arrived at some, some of those conclusions three or four years prior, but uh, 2004 in California, Prop 8 was on the ballot and that was to uh, make gay marriage illegal. So I talked with friends from church. I talked with friends who were gay I was trying to think this thing through and I finally arrived at this epiphany that like, so the, the inclination or this unspoken belief from some of my friends from church was, well, it's the right thing to do because we, and I'm like, first of all, I don't necessarily agree on the theological merits of that argument. Um, but also, you know, we're evangelical and, you know, we should, this is what we believe and this is what we want our society to look like. It should reflect our values. But here I am thinking like, okay, so let's say we get this law passed. None of my gay friends are going to wake up the next day and say, this is illegal. Being gay must be wrong. Uh, so I better repent of that quote unquote sin. And I'm now I'm going to become a Christian because that's the right, like, 
that that is completely illogical. In fact, I think it's counter to like it's counter to the greater um, not just e- evangelism. It, it, it does harm to uh, there, I think there's a greater principle. Uh, Jewish people articulate it better in a principle called tikkun olam. Mm-hmm. You know, whether people are Jewish or not, uh, and I believe whether people are Christian or not, tikkun olam means healing the world. We can all participate in identifying uh, disease in the world or problems in the world or problems that other people are having and try to bring healing to that, pr- try to bring redemption to that. So whether it's a religious endeavor or not, we can participate in that. But this, this inclination that we're going to pass some stupid law that two people who have nothing to do with Christianity and certainly will want to have nothing to do with, with it from here on out, it's, it's, not going to do, it's not going to do that greater project of redeeming, you know, redeeming the world, redeeming yeah. all the problems in the world. So sorry, I've talked a lot more on this conversation than I probably should have. So I hesitate to ask if you have any other questions for me. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, so all, all Saints Church in, in Pasadena, very uh, Episcopal, uh, very social justice oriented. And Desmond Tutu has been there, to, was, has been there to speak many times. And he introduced me to the, the principle of Mbutu. So Swahili, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I am because you are. And so, and sort of a little bit of the sort of the value thing. Yeah, my, because you have worth, I have worth. Because you're okay, I'm okay. Um, when you're doing well, I'm doing well. And that's just a, a non, there's not a religious aspect to that. It's, it's a cultural sort of thing. And it's, a, I think, a beautiful thing for us to move forward with in life. And, you know, you know those sort of, you know, humane, just, compassionate society that we want. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of humanistic values. Those are the things I think that's that are better for us to focus on and and do those sorts of things. Yeah, no, and I can see the um, evolutionary ethics uh, in some of that thinking. Like I can see where someone who uh, is an evolutionary ethicist—I I don't know if that's such a thing—but I could see I could see where that um, that study w- would make sense. You know, I I, I was talking to um, this fellow Rick Hansen. Um, psychologist by trade, but also uh, Buddhist practitioner, mm-hmm. uh, meditation expert, and has studied the brain science of the benefits of meditation. You know, just something as simple as participating in breathing <laughs> means that we're participating in good work. Like if I'm outside, the, you know, I'm getting the oxygen from my plants and I'm delivering the is it carbon dioxide? Is that what I'm carbon dioxide? Yeah. Yeah. So there's this exchange that we're making each other better. We're helping each other sustain ourselves. And, you know, that's sort of a, a rudimentary explanation of it. But I think there are higher, uh, higher callings that that we can do a, a, a other versions of that, you know? Yeah. So yeah. and uh I was sort of a question for you. Yeah. Um, so and I think as part of our philosophy as an organization is, you know is the freedom of and from religion. It sort of as one of the grounding roots um, in the foundation of the United States. Um, so, and I will say we will, while we obviously serve non-religious students as our main focus, um, and we've had conversation about religious students as well, and they're welcome and those sorts of things. Um, we also, part of that is if there was, you know, uh, a Muslim student who's having an issue about being a minority religion being discriminated, we would support that student. 
you know, Hindu students, Buddhist students, non-religious students, Christian students who was, wasn't feeling that they, you know, were being discriminated against. We would support that student because it's part of your freedom to have your religion. And I think we also, though, that's your personal experience. And where your freedom ends is when you try to then have me live your religious beliefs. So you can have yours and that's fine for you. It, your freedom ends when you start to force me to live by your religious belief. And I think we've definitely seen the, the increase in Christian nationalism um, just in the United States. And I'm curious as you know, a religious person, how do you see that taking place and something to be worried about, something that we need to be done about, those sorts of things? Yeah, no, I think there is something that we need to be worried about. I think especially, see the impulse that I've found in religious communities I've been a part of, whether it's my kid's school a few years ago or the church that we went to when I first became a Christian for the better part of 10, 15 years, uh, Bible studies, um, just all different. I should say, preface this by saying we go to a wonderful church in Pasadena right now. It's a Presbyterian church. Uh, I've learned things that from that church community that I think any number of progressives, non-religious people would say, wow, that's really admirable. I've learned the concept of affirming, not just approving, but affirming yeah. uh, when it comes to folks' uh, sexual identity. So uh, I do want to preface it by saying that, but I am here to tell you, man, like there is a problem in the church. And I think it's imperative that the leaders within the church are the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and the, you know, the, the Malachi's. We're not doing enough of that. And when it happens, you see what happens to Beth Moore. You see what happens to Dr. Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, you see what happens to um, people that I really look up to and admire, people like David French, who frankly was uh, on the leading, he, he was a leader within the pro-life movement. He was a leader within the conservative legal movement. But because he's finding common cause with folks who he he is he understands that we live in a pluralist society. He understands that these stupid state level laws that are getting passed about anti CRT and anti gay and anti trans. He understands that there are certain morals and values that do transcend. There are certain morals and values that in a pluralist society we can all agree upon. But the second that that it becomes one religion dictating that, and it becomes particular to one religion. You know, I'm curious to see how this how this case uh, advances with the uh, the coach in Texas wanting to pray on the 50 yard line. You know, th there's 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 subtleties in there. There's nuances in there that it creates an inhospitable environment for folks who choose not to participate. So right. I'm curious to see how we work that out. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to sit here and say, no, the church has got it all right. And the Christians are, you know, free from, from sin. But I think, I think folks who are identifying as Christians, folks who are identifying as evangelicals are some of the worst examples. When, the, when what comes to mind when we think of evangelicals, when what comes to mind when we think of Christians is some guy taking a shit in the middle of a rotunda in the, in the Capitol. What comes to mind are people who are taking flags and beating the life literally out of out of police officers. Yeah. I think we got a serious problem. But the problem like the problem is only going to get worse if it's folks who are outside of the church. 
you know, because then then it just I don't know, it gives fuel to this illusion of grievance of we're the persecuted minority, which I think is an illusion and it's bullshit. And it's led to all kinds of evil. I think it has to come from within the church, you know, but um, I don't know. I've tried to do it because that's kind of my nature as, as a Jew or, you know, if you're not, you know, quite, if you don't have three opinions about any given issue, you're just <laughs> not, you know, you have to hand in your Jew, your Jewish card. So I've done this, but to be honest, like, and it wasn't just in the era of Trump. It's been since I become a Christian, I saw certain things that just didn't make sense. And I've literally, like, I was sharing this story with somebody the other day, we were on a, a weekend retreat with some folks that we were doing a, a, class, a Bible study class with. And uh, four or five of the guys stayed up late at night. We were going through some scripture and uh, it was, it was a part of acts where the, um, basically it was like they were setting up the picture of a socialist society. Everybody had to sell all of their belongings, all of their property, take all of the funds from that and give it to the church so that the church can dispense or not the church, but the, the group of people who believed in Jesus rose from the dead thing uh, that they can disperse it as a group of people. I mean, that's a picture of socialism. So I brought this thing up. And I was like, it was so socialist that somebody sold all their stuff and kept some of it back. Like they gave like most of it to the church, but they kept some of it back. Like, and that guy died on the spot, man. That was like socialist to the end of that on oh, steroids. Literally the next morning, we had another day or two that we were supposed to be there. They asked us to leave. They're like, yeah, you can't, you can't. Be oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so um, I've been shouted down in auditoriums that there was a, 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 uh, so these these tendencies, these uh, have have been around for a long time. So uh, at the, the kids school, they, they brought in the speaker uh, who grew up in Eastern Europe. And I thought we were going to learn about like what's going on in Eastern Europe and how those governments and, and um, you know, cultures have evolved. And but now this speaker spoke for an hour about the fact that Barack Hussein Obama, she made sure to say his middle name every damn time. Uh, is this Marxist terrorist? He's probably an Islamist. I'm like, he can't be all those things at the same time, first of all. But like, I got up at the end of the thing and I said, all due respect, what does this have to do with classical Christian education? I, I, I mean, let her have a seven minute segment on Fox News or OANN or something like that. But like, what does this have to do with classical Christian education? Man, I was shouted down from the back of the room uh, somebody had to basically take the, the head of the school had to basically call to order the whole thing. Cause like there were people getting like, it was more than host hostile out in the parking lot. My dad was with me that night. You know, there were people who were like, you know, honking their horns and like, it was, it was on the border of violence. Um, so anyway, all that to say, I'd love to sit here and say, we got it all right. Now we're really a peaceful people, but like there's this other subculture in American Christianity today, where we're, we're worshiping idols of a different sort. And yes. that idol is like a certain version of conservatism. Because like, if you, if you come in with scripture, and you're like, hey, wait a second, you know, Leviticus 19 says this thing about about immigration, I think we should maybe rethink these conversations we're having about immigrants, folks who are born on another side of you know, the America, American Mexican border, like maybe we should rethink it in light of what scriptures actually say. No, no, no. You can't do that because a higher priority is being an orthodox devotee of whatever the hell Hannity's saying that night or whatever the hell Bongino's saying that day. You know, like, so I don't know, man. I, I wish it, it makes my theological um, underpinnings, it, it makes it 
really it, it make it's troublesome for those theological underpinnings that I've arrived at. So I'm just being as transparent as I can be. No, I and I I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree. And I think part a, a large part of why young people leave are leaving religion is because of I think exactly what you're you're saying. So they know gay and trans people, but yet religion tells them how horrible they are. And you can't say, well, I'm religious, but I like them because there's there's not an appetite for that. Or, you know, we should be more compassionate to people trying to get in the United States because my family immigrated to the United States and my neighbor's family immigrated to the United States. And a lot of people in my school, their families immigrated to the United States, but for some reason, they're bad people now. Yeah. So I, I, there's, you know, a lot as as our world becomes so much smaller, a largely part to technology um, and just how pluralistic we're becoming, I, I think we're, this version of religion is, 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 you know, will come to an end actually very, you know, not soon, but will have its, its underpinnings in, in the long run. And I'm very hopeful about the young, the young generation coming up. Yeah. And I do want to say again, like for as much of a critique as I have against some of the really, really, troublesome things to say the least that 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 we just discussed there are organizations there are churches that are doing the right things you know i i was going to the annual gathering of the society for christian ethics and and they specifically get together at the same time in the same place with society for jewish ethics society for the study of uh, muslim ethics so i i think there are you know and, and some of the panels i heard there are, are just fantastic just you know, I, I think even a non-religious person would go to some of these um, talks and panels and uh, applaud what they're all about. But, you know, Society for Christian Ethics does not get nearly as many clicks as Laura Ingram's show. <laughs> so. No, and I think we would both agree there's a there's a, there are lots of good religious and non-religious people out there. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of bad, you know, there are bad organized things that are, you know, perverting, taking over you know, for other intents and purposes. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, Bonhoeffer was the guy who literally was put to death uh, because he bucked not just Nazism, but the uh, institutional part of the Church of Germany. He was the exception. So, yeah, uh, I, I think that's a tendency that historically has repeated itself. So I, I've I've monopolized your time for a little bit longer than than I anticipated, but it, it's been a great conversation. Uh, I'd love for you to tell for you to tell us how we can find more information about you, uh, Secular Student Alliance, I, and you guys are having a summer conference that's a really uh, cool event that I heard about. To just tell us a little bit more about how we can find you and all, all the great work y'all are doing. Uh, sure. So we, uh, the easiest place is online, secularstudents.org. Um, so if students want to find uh, chapters that may be at their school, we've got a map on there. We have free student membership. So our, we're fortunate our donors and supporters allow us to, to provide all of our services free to our students. So we do lots of table supplies and resources for our student chapters. And we, we right now we um, on our sites uh, for uh, secular activism, so separation of church and state. You can be religious and and support separation of church and state. We hope that a lot of religious people uh, support that. But we have our scholarships that are going right now, so it's uh, easy to go in and apply for um, our scholarships. Link on our website for that as well. Um, if you're a donor, you'd like to support us, please feel free to do that. And we do have our summer conference. We've had we've been uh, having. Uh, I think we're 22. This is our 22nd conference. The last two have been virtual. 
We had plans to go back in person. We were going to be in Missouri. Uh, and unfortunately, we just had to make the decision to go virtual again this year. So it was not our desire, but we are. And so we'll actually be having information up about uh, end of July. We're going to have three days. And it's going to be really sort of student nuts and bolts focused. So sort of coming out of pandemic, you know, sort of organizing and action and really sort of formulating that for the best start coming back on campus in the fall. So we'll have information very soon uh, uh, about that. But there is a link. Uh, if students are interested, they can click on the link saying, hey, send me more information when you got it, and we'll be doing that. So I did have, I just realized I do have one more question. Sure. <laughs> and again, it, it might sound like a troublemaker question. So you between like Ask an Atheist Anything, um, Summer Conference, the outreach that you did to you know, campuses all over the country. Do you see the job of SSA partly as one of persuasion? Uh, I don't think so. I was going to ask if you're an evangelical atheist. There is the aspect of part of, and, and intent on our part of helping normalize non-religion. Um, and I think the main root of that comes from is we don't want young people, we don't want people in general, but we especially don't want young people feeling like less valued and harassed and attacked. And we, I mean, we, there have been instances of violence and those things. We don't want that to happen. Um, and just because you don't believe in the man in the sky who's telling you what to do, and I know that's a yeah way generalization, a uh, simplification, but that you're still a good person. And there are the angry atheist and you know baby eaters and i mean we're i think we're we're away from most of that but there's still i mean uh, trans muslim and non-religious people are still the most mistrusted despised people in the united states per surveys so there's a lot of stigma that we're coming that we're fighting against and so helping normalize that we're hoping that not that you have not that you become non-religious but that you go okay there are religious people out there and there's nothing wrong with that right right that makes sense i'm i'm glad i asked it's so it's more a matter of of support and as you say normalizing uh, so that there isn't this hostile environment for folks who don't happen to believe in god or don't happen to um, submit to a re religious practice as something that they want to participate in yeah and i will say i think I think lots of organized religion right now does a much better job of turning young people into atheists than we could do ourselves. <laughs> I think that's a great point. <laughs> that's a really great point. Uh, and we could talk for another hour just about that <laughs> my own kids' experiences. Anyway, uh, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate getting to know you personally a little bit better and learning about SSA and all the great work you guys are doing. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. It's been enlightening for me. So I really appreciate it. I, I thank you for having me on. It's been it's been a great good good conversation. I enjoyed it. You bet, you bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about talk politics and religion not killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. Politics and religion us. That's politics and religion us. You can even support a program through the Patreon app on the site or patreon.com slash politics and religion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us. 
by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Thank you.